This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello. Lovely to have your company today for The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Now, uh, a fish described as being the locust of the waterways has been found following the River Murray as floodwaters recede in parts of South Australia and it's causing some headaches. It is a class one noxious fish, so it's a pest fish for those people that aren't aware what that means. And it is getting into their systems and into their pipe networks and into their filters, and it is really causing havoc upstream. I'll have more details on that and how you can identify it in case you do come across it yourself. But first up today, Australia's cattle herd is set to reach its largest size in nearly a decade, according to Meat and Livestock Australia. Expected to hit 28.8 million head this year, the increase in numbers is now beyond rebuild status. MLA's Senior Market Information Analyst Ripley Atkinson says the growth is underpinned by a few factors. 2023 will be a year of transition for the cattle industry and and quite an optimistic one. So the retention or the record retention of animals on farm in 2022 and and parts of 2021 is driving that increase we see eventuating. Secondly, it's the genetic improvement which is affecting productivity of the national herd and then also the medium-term confidence that is a product of, of ample availability of water and grass for producers. And those three key factors, when you bring them together, are underpinning that increase in supply that, that we expect to eventuate uh, well into 2024. Are we likely to see this growth continue nationally? Yeah, yeah. The expectation across when you look at the key metrics, that expectation is for that to continue, regardless of the seasonal outcomes, because of those factors I just mentioned previously, which um, which are extending across large parts of, of Australia's cattle producing regions. If the larger size was back in 2014, what were the cattle prices doing then? And is there a trend that we can anticipate with pricing and herd numbers? In line with the, the increase in supply we, we expect in 2023, we, we also, uh, and industry analysts have also forecast that the cattle prices will return to operate at longer term averages. And because of that, there's, there's different dynamics between the necessity to demand cattle in the market because producers have rebuilt their numbers. They have the availability of stock on farm, so there's not as much demand, but Regardless of that, those longer-term averages still promote really positive pricing environments for producers uh, right across right across the different articles of animals that, that Australia delivers to both to the domestic and global market. And can we forecast what some of those long-term average prices will look like? Yeah, so in 2023, the forecast for the benchmark Eastern Young Cattle Indicator uh, is for it to reach 811 cents a kilo carcass weight by the middle of this year, 30 June 2023. And then importantly, the introduction of the National Feeder Steer Indicator, which represents a transactable article of animal in the market, is forecast to reach 419 or 420 cents a kilo live weight. So even though those prices 
uh, are a step down from from the record years of 2020 to 2022, the the feeder steer price would still remain 33 cents or eight and a half percent above the five year average, and the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, if it reached 811 cents, would still remain 61 cents or eight percent above the five year average as well. So. The market forecasts still remain optimistic and positive for an improvement in prices from current rates, and they do forecast that they'll remain above longer-term averages as well. How does that then position the Australian beef industry in the global supply chain? 2023 will be a very interesting year and a very closely followed year in the sense that the situation involving the herd liquidation and potential supply contractions in the US because of the drought will determine uh, the US flipping from a net exporter to a net importer because their domestic market is so big. And as a result of that, that'll mean Australia's market share in line with rising production can improve in key export markets such as Japan and South Korea, and then also the US as well, which really bodes in a positive light and promotes a lot of optimism for the cattle industry to deliver that high quality, consistent beef to three of our major markets around the world due to that US supply contraction. And you did just touch upon weather. Um, How has the extreme wet weather and floods across the country over the past few years played their role in the recent data? At an overall level, the the weather and and the really the the some of the best years uh, producers have seen in a very long time consecutively has been very positive. But we know there has been challenges right across the country to differing extents that have impacted cattle performance and and have been impactful at an overall level or at an individual level to producers. But generally these seasonal conditions have been fantastic and they've really promoted the positivity and the growth in in numbers where we're expecting to see eventuate. But there have been challenges, um, such as the recent flooding in the Kimberley and and Pilbara, and they're also, they they do need to be recognised as as impactful to those producers up there. And when we are looking at challenges, how could the labour shortage derail a top herd performance like this? Labour issues in the processing sector will be sort of the key determinant of cattle slaughter performance this year. And as a result of that, um, MLA's recognised in their forecast two scenarios. The first scenario for cattle slaughter is based upon 6.6 million head being processed. And that's that's with the expectation of normality and actual cattle supply being delivered into those facilities. If the processing sector can't deal with and negate their current labour issues, the forecast is for cattle slaughter to reach 6 million head and that's firm on 2022 numbers. So there's no real change in or any improvement in cattle slaughter figures, despite the fact that the herd's continuing to rise. And that will cause issues for the industry right across the supply chain if the labour concerns the processing sector is facing can't be negated or dealt with. MLA Senior Market Analyst Ripley Atkinson speaking to me, to Demetria Panagiotara. Some interesting information there. It uh, makes sense given how much rain there's been, that there's been a solid rebuild there. But what will happen, uh, and particularly those international factors as well, will be interesting to watch through 2023. To cattle of a different kind now, and the dairy industry is experiencing so strong seasonal conditions and high prices, and there are flow-on effects to multiple industries, including the genetics industry. Sarah Lawrence spoke to three separate genetics providers who say they're all experiencing good sales. 
CMEX General Manager Tyson Shea says the sector is reaping the benefits of a booming dairy industry. So 2022 was a record year for, for CMEX in Australia, mostly driven by uh, the increase in sex semen usage. And I think that the driver of that at farm level was the live export price of black and white heifer calves. So saw the trend that of a lot more sex semen being used, um, a decrease in conventional semen and, and then an increase in beef semen. Um, probably the increase in beef semen was for the demand of the beef on dairy calf. Uh, so overall, a, a very successful year yeah, for us. And how's the year ahead looking? Really good. So um, supply looks strong. Um, the industry's in a really good spot with milk price, uh, live export price, beef price. So I think, yeah, if we can back it up again this year, we'll have a, another successful year. It's a similar story for Darren Fletcher from Total Livestock Genetics, who's seeing a booming industry. Absolutely fantastic. Record sales over the last 12 months. Sex semen usage is increasing by about 20%. Farmers are buoyant about using sex semen, so it's, uh, it's certainly showing up in the figures. And why do you think the demand is there? Have things changed over the past few years? Uh, obviously, milk prices have played a pretty important factor in it with, with high milk prices. Uh, farmers could use with some lower input prices, but the, it's made them buoyant that the industry's um, stronger and, and going to be there for the future. So that sounds quite promising. I, even with uh, weather conditions, do you think it will hold up? Yeah, certainly. There's a lot more, you know, farms in northern Victoria and the likes of that that are going to barns and, and, and whatnot. So they are adapting to changing climates and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, certainly, certainly see a future. While Jared Brislin from Genetics Australia says farmers have just come off a tremendous end to 2022 and they're looking to the future. I think continuing to set up for the next generation, you know, is, is where they're, uh, they're wanting to invest. You know, we have technologies around, uh, you know, the genomics and genotyping today and people can sort of see a future in, in that, you know, and, and that's, um, yeah, it's, it's very much, you know, that... Uh, long-term investment I guess that you know where they where they see the advantages in uh, in genetic material. Do you see any bumps ahead in the road or any challenges? Oh I think uh, there's, there's always sort of um, you know challenges along the way I probably tend to think that um, you know what what the next next 12 months sort of brings you know we've you know just as I said come off uh, off some nice conditions and you know really does depend on what uh, you know where the rainfalls uh, you know in the next 12 months and the likes and uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's been some nice harvests in terms of fodder and the likes, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're just going to have to sort of wait and wait and sort of see what sort of plays out. I mean, it can be, uh, it can be one thing this month and a little bit different in six weeks' time, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, changes pretty quick. On that note, when you're having a good year, what are you doing now to mitigate any potential ups and downs? Oh, yeah, I think, you know, mitigation around that, particularly in our in the part of business that we're in in terms of genetics, it's just really important for us to continue to identify, you know, the best genetics that we can take forward for uh, for Australian dairy farmers, you know. Uh, you know, breeding Australia, better Australian cows is, uh, and herds is what we're all about. And, uh, you know, we're in the process right at the moment of just sort of signing off some, some new acquisitions through our beef and our dairy programs, and, you know, which will take us forward in the next, uh, you know, the next 18 months with some strength around breeding values and the like. Genetics Australia's Jared.
Brislin, ending that report by Sarah Lawrence. It's 16 minutes past 12. Now, women play a vital role in all sectors of agriculture, but when it comes to their representation on boards of peak industry groups, they're still in the minority. That's something that the Professor of Agriculture at Charles Sturt University, Tim, Jim Prattley, wants to see changed. Having watched the number of women increase rapidly over recent decades in Australian university ag programs, Mr Prattley told Alice Marshall that peak bodies have to pick up their game to represent these women at a corporate level and reap the rewards that follow. Well, we can go back to uh, pre-1970s when women weren't allowed in ag colleges or in, in ag high schools. And uh, we've moved on a long way f- uh, from there to about 2003 when when women became the majority of students in our agriculture programs across the university sector in Australia. And that majority has persisted uh, without a failure since that time. And uh, it's probably increased rather than decreased. And so that's 20 years of more females coming into agriculture at the professional level than yeah, we'd, we'd seen uh, in a whole lifetime before. So it's it's a really good news story. Uh, if you have a look at some of the individual courses, then we know that uh, in agriculture there's a majority. But in the animal science, animal production courses, there is a big majority of females. And uh, so the cattle industry would be depending on a lot of those graduates. And then in veterinary science, where um, they'd be depending on uh, their animals being uh, looked after and cured and so on, uh, it's probably 80% plus women. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've got to get over this uh, issue of uh, patronising women. We've got to accept that they're actually the strength of our sector and uh, they're doing a mag- magic job. And if we look at uh, the National Farmers Federation, for example, we've got our first female president uh, and she is done an outstanding job of taking agriculture to places that we couldn't have dreamed of getting in with a male president. And uh, we're a much more professional sector now than we've ever been. And what would you say to those industry bodies across Australia's ag sector that don't achieve gender diversity and that have maybe a majority men to a minority women, if they only have one or two women on their board of six or seven men, what would you say to them? That really is uh, not acceptable in this uh, day and age. Um, we need to have very good representation of um, you know, men, women, uh, older, younger, uh, Indigenous, uh, and perhaps even uh, immigrants. Uh, there's various ways of doing things and the better input we have from a different range of people, the better decisions we'll make going forward. Do you think that there's a gap that you can see in the women that are coming through and they're doing these really hands-on ag courses like animal science or veterinary science, Mm. but they're not making that leap or they're choosing not to make that leap into the corporate sector, into the corporate world? Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I think there's there's perhaps more than uh, we think. I know that in the research and development corporations, for example, there is an expectation of relative balance in gender. So that's 40% of each, uh, at least. 
I see it also in uh, some of the other uh, bodies, but of course there are quite a few that haven't moved in that direction. And uh, I just think that they're going to be forced to address that sooner rather than later because um, there's a lot of scrutiny these days on boards and committees and so on. And uh, so there should be. We're, we've moved to a point where uh, there's no going back and we just have to go forward and and we need to go forward because that's both the most appropriate thing to do in in order for us to get the best advice that we can. Professor Jim Prattley AM from Charles Sturt University's School of Agriculture speaking to Alice Marshall. We've got weather up next, but in the meantime, it's been described as being like a wave of locusts in the water. That's at least how an irrigation body is describing findings of a pest species in the River Murray as floodwaters recede. Oriental weatherloach is a small eel-like borrowing fish. It's classed as a noxious pest species and when caught must not be returned to the water. Renmark irrigator Joe Catalana tells Timu King how he found one in his filter. Yes, we were dismantling my irrigation filter because we had problems and it just fell out with the water. And have you seen this sort of fish before or uh, encountered it? No, never. Have you since identified what sort of fish it actually is or tried to? Only through the social media. What did they say or think it was, and do you think that's correct? Well, there's a couple of very learned gentlemen that lean towards it being an oriental weatherlout. There's a few suggestions it could be a lamprey. A lamprey, really? What are you thinking? Well, I've never seen either, so I'm sort of going with the experts. Was it just the one, or were there several that came out? No, when you were... no, there was only one, but I hear there's another gentleman that got a property a couple of K down the road from me and he says he's getting quite a few through his uh, filters. That's interesting. So you, it's not just a localised problem, you think? There's quite a few people who are being affected. Well, I, I, I don't know what effect they have, to be honest with you. I hear that they're a pest species, but directly affecting me, it's not really, no. Were they impacting your water filter at all or was this just a routine no, no, clean? Just a routine clean, no, no. He, he would have got spit out the first the cycle that the filter did. Renmark Irrigator Joe Catalano. Renmark Irrigation Trust Chief Executive Rosalie Orich says irrigators need to keep a close eye on their pumps and filters. We've just recently been advised from our upstream colleagues that they are being inundated by a fish which is a class one noxious fish. It's a tiny little it looks a, a cross between an eel and the catfish. It is a class one noxious fish, so it's a pest fish for those people that aren't aware what that means. And it is getting into their systems and into their pipe networks and into their filters. And it is really causing havoc upstream. We have just started to notice it ourselves. And if people have any blocked meters or anything, please let us know. We'll do our best to get that rectified as soon as possible. In terms of what is likely to happen, we understand that the volumes will decrease as the flood water recedes. So it's like a wave of, a bit like a locust plague, but in the water and it will reduce as the water recedes. So we hope this won't be an ongoing problem, but they are quite... I'm, I'm not a real fish person, but some of these look slimy on some photos we've seen from upstream. So 
but we don't have it in the same quantities here yet. And what sort of quantities are we talking about upstream? I've seen a few pictures. People have found one, two, maybe ten at the most. But what's it been like upstream in terms of sheer mass of fish? In in terms of the systems and filters and things up there, they are seeing a complete layer of these fish on their screens and filters and to the point where the whole thing becomes blocked and no water can pass through. We're not seeing that yet, and we hope we don't see it down here. But it is, a new, unfortunately, a new pest fish in the Murray-Darling Basin system, and we'll have to work out how to deal with it depending on the outcome from this flood. We are about to publish our latest newsletter, The Pipeline, and there are some photos both from upstream and from here as to what these fish look like so people will be have a little bit more information about it. Renmark Irrigation Trust Chief Executive Rosalie Herrick sending that report from Timu King. And still to come on the country, you'll meet one of AgriFutures SA's Rural Women's Award finalists up in about 15 minutes or so. But first, here's Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology with the latest forecast. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. It's quite mild out there, really, comparatively to what it can be at this time of year. How are things looking? Yeah, it is. Uh, we've just got those uh, southerly winds continuing, keeping the temperatures below average for for this time of year. But uh, not a lot happening across the state today. A little bit of cloud up in the north and a little bit along the, the coastal fringes as well. But there, there's a slight risk we could get the odd shower out of the, uh, the clouds sitting over the northeast pastoral district and the north of the Flinders. But really, if we do see anything, it's, uh, it's going to be uh, hardly... Worth talking about, uh, just might get 0.2, 0.4 if, if we're lucky. But uh, yeah, elsewhere across the state, you're looking at fine <coughs> conditions, as you mentioned, uh, quite a bit cooler in that southerly flow. And things aren't really going to get much warmer over the next few days. We're actually going to uh, see um, some uh, reasonable de- decreases in, in temperatures over the next few days until we uh, start to see some warming as we head across the weekend. But part of that is uh, due to uh, the winds going a little bit more southwesterly due to, uh, well, first uh, a trough moving across the, the south of the state tomorrow. So as that trough uh, moves across the south, we are expecting a little bit of a narrow band of, of showers moving up with that uh, with that trough uh, moving across parts of the southern agricultural area. So not uh, not extending too far north. Most of it will be about southern coasts and ranges and might see a few millimetres out of that system as it moves through. But as we head into Thursday, we get a more substantial frontal feature moving across the south. So we will see showers extending a little bit further north, still mainly about the southern agricultural area, maybe getting into central and eastern parts of the um, northern agricultural area but uh, yeah, most of the activity will be further south and it does get really windy as well with that system moving through so we will have some some coastal wind warnings and there's a reasonable swell moving up with that as well but yeah most of the rainfall will fall on Thursday it's still a little bit lingering around again on Friday but uh, with those southerly winds coming in we are expecting uh, temperatures to probably being around that sort of 10 to 15 degrees below average across southern parts of the state during Friday. So certainly a pretty cold 
burst of weather for this time of year. But as we head into the weekend and certainly early next week, winds starting to go southeasterly again, looking at generally fine conditions right through uh, that Saturday to, to Tuesday period. Winds gradually going a bit more easterly to northwesterly, northeasterly, sorry, and pushing the temperatures up a little bit. So we will see temperatures warming again after a pretty cold burst, but uh, yeah, it'll be nice to see those uh, temperatures getting somewhere back up to around normal uh, early next week, Cassie. But uh, in the meantime, rainfall ranges, look, generally speaking, across the, the southern agricultural area, looking at uh, some falls around that sort of 2 to 10 millimetres, but um, about parts of the ranges and southern coast, you could see some isolated falls getting up to about 20 millimetres. So a little bit more rainfall around those areas after the amount that we had over the weekend. Thanks so much for that, Vince Rollins. There, there'll be more on your ABC local radio this afternoon. In the far west of New South Wales, the weather there's going to be sunny tomorrow. Could get a little bit windy uh, before dawn and uh, perhaps uh, in the early morning as well. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 18 to 21 degrees. Daytime temperatures, though, it's going to get up to the mid-30s. The lower western will be sunny. Again, a bit of wind around. Overnight temperatures there are going to fall to around 15 degrees. But again, the daytime temperatures reaching around 30 degrees. I've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill... This is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me this afternoon. I'll tell you about an exciting development at Elizabeth in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. The cars at the old Holden factory are making way for mushrooms. Uh, this state one here in about three weeks' time. So on the 26th of February, we, we will hit full production of stage one. That will give us about 20 tonnes of oyster mushrooms a week. There's uh, a lot. That's a lot of mushrooms, and uh, they're not going to be the mushrooms that you're familiar with. These are exotic mushrooms like oysters, noki, shiitake mushrooms, and mushrooms are seeing an increase in demand, particularly as an alternative protein source. But uh, short of cutting some raw ones up in a salad or putting it in a bolognese, I don't really cook with mushrooms that much. Uh, certainly not these exotic ones. I don't say I'm scared of them, but they're just not something I even remotely look at. So I'd love to hear how you like to cook with them. You can call me on 1300 222891 or you can text 04679 I'm actually going to bring in an expert as well. I'll have Chef Callum Han on to offer some suggestions as well. And uh, particularly focusing on these less common mushrooms is what I'm keen to hear about and uh, some of your suggestions as well. Also, soon you'll meet one of the AgriFutures SA Rural Women's Award finalists as well, hear about some of the great work she's doing. But first, here's news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the government says there's been a 94% increase in all applications for the fee-free TAFE courses in South Australia compared to this time last year. The most competition for places was in nursing, early childhood education and cyber security. The Premier, Peter Malinowskis, says the scheme will give much-needed financial relief to students. 
An Adelaide Northern Suburbs Council is preparing for protests again tonight after a meeting cancellation last night. The Salisbury Council called off its highly anticipated meeting due to a power outage, with a number of protesters outside the chambers. It was set to discuss the controversial Safe Cities program, which implements more CCTV in streets. And euthanasia advocate Liz Huberman says that new laws around voluntary assisted dying in SA will help to ease the process of grief for loved ones. The laws came into effect as of today, allowing certain people with terminal medical conditions to request to be able to legally end their life. Ms Huberman's son took his own life after being diagnosed with cancer in 2017. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. As he says, more news coming at one o'clock. Now, uh, as I mentioned, the former Holden factory in the northern suburb of Elizabeth is now home to an exotic mushroom farm and food manufacturing facility. They're not the only mushroom producers up there, but they're new. The $110 million project will eventually produce 20,000 tonnes of exotic mushrooms and mushroom products each year, and it expects about 350 staff will be employed as well when it's completed, making it possible the largest exotic mushroom facility in the country. Production of oyster mushrooms will start in late February and then other varieties like shiitake and enoki ones will follow. The CEO of the Epicurean Food Group, Kenneth King, can explain the project. We started to build a little mushroom farm three years ago and we got pushed and pulled by the customers to go bigger. I've, I've grown up in the industry, so we thought we'd go and chase the market so we did we came to elizabeth in november or october late october early november and started to build a substantial size oyster mushroom farm and it's just growing and growing and now today we we're going to open stage one which is the 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 basis of the farm uh, as well as the value-add kitchen but then we we continue on the seven stages of development here uh, this state one here in about three weeks' time. So on the 26th of February, we, we will hit full production of stage one. That will give us about 20 tonnes of oyster mushrooms a week. The fresh mushroom goes um, across the country via uh, Costa Group, uh, which are our distribution partners. And so they sell all my product for me fresh. But the value-add section where we make the mushroom burgers, the mushroom snags, the balls and the crumble, that sort of stuff, we distribute that ourselves and that goes nationally to various outlets. At the moment, I've got, uh, I think there's 37 full-time equivalent. Uh, I've got 21 more off-site that support me um, in, in all of my, my services and you know, facility. I've got about 60 contractors. And when we go to harvest on the 26th of February, we put another 45 people on in, in one block. We've already, we're now beginning to train those people. And as we open the next stage and, and, state, and the progressive stages, we will get to 350, maybe 400 people. CEO of the Epicurean Food Group, Kenna King, there, just giving you some of the nuts and bolts as to uh, what will go into this $110 million mushroom project in the, the northern Adelaide Plains or near Elizabeth. And uh, I'm keen to know how you would use exotic mushrooms, how you like to cook with them and things like that. Uh, do feel free to text in 0467 922 or phone 1300 Mark from Inglewood says, uh, I hear they wanted more space at the old Holden factory, but 
but he was told there was not much room left. <laughs> boom, boom. I think there are quite a lot of fun puns we could uh, come up with through this period as well. I was trying to think of things around fun guys as well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm open to some good puns as well. But uh, Penny Reedy from the SA Produce Market has actually had a tour of the facility this morning. So she can tell us what it looks like. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Thanks for having me. So you've had a bit of a chance to look around. Does it still look like a car factory? No, it really doesn't. They've really turned a high-tech paint room into a high-tech food production room, and it's amazing what they've done there. And the scope of what they've got to grow into is just a bit mind-blowing, to be honest. And how are they actually growing the mushrooms? Because there's all those jokes about mushrooms about being kept in the dark and things like that. So what does this mushroom growing extravaganza look like? Well, it's a vertical farm and they're grown in what's called blocks. So there's these blocks of um, hay that they put stuff into to cultivate it. And they're just a block that covers itself in they kind of like cauliflower looking um, oyster mushrooms. Um, and what they're doing is replicating almost like a rainforest. So it has to have a lot of water, a lot of moisture. But because it's all undercover, it's all um, climate controlled and they have complete control over the way that they're growing it it's absolutely fascinating and very very different from a traditional button mushroom farm what makes it different just with the fact the way that they do it you know they can grow up they can go vertically they're grown in these blocks in these individual blocks which is also great for like if pest control if they get any pests in one little block they can remove it and it won't ruin the rest of the crop so it's absolutely fascinating (laughs) I've heard the technology, or the lab at least, is quite fascinating as well because if you see a problem in a mushroom farm, it's almost too late to do anything about it. So did they take you through all of the science that goes into making sure that they're safe to eat as well? Yeah, so the doctor here that's cultivating everything and they grow it from start to end. So that's the difference that we have as well with a traditional mushroom farm. Some of them bring their spawns in from interstate or whatever, but it's a whole all-inclusive turnkey production that they have here. So they've got a doctor on board who's doing all the science to make sure that they're getting quality, fresh produce. And because they are grown in these individual blocks, which are about... Uh, I'm not technical, but I'd say a 45 centimetre rectangle by 30 centimetres. Um, and they can remove one single block if there's a problem with it. So it's, um, it's really quite interesting. You can quarantine the sick ones. I've got a text here from Deb from Warradale asking what market these fancy mushrooms are aimed at. Are they going to come through the, the SA produce market? They absolutely are. The first people that are going to have access to the production here is going to be independent fruit and vegetable stores, which is why we're so excited about it. So they're the ones that are getting the first that are being grown here. Um, And then as they expand, they'll go into supermarkets and interstate. But South Australian independent fruit and vegetable stores will be having the first pick of this quality new produce being produced right here in Elizabeth. And given you work at the the SA Produce Market, what sort of demand is there for mushrooms? Yeah, Australians are not massive mushroom eaters and so it'll be great to see what the uptake will be. And I think, like you said before, people are really scared of what to do with an oyster mushroom. I myself am a vegetarian and you know I love chucking anything on a barbecue and Callum Hahn has confirmed for me this morning that you can in fact cook these on a barbecue as well. The oysters. I was going to ask you, because you are a vegetarian and it is a good protein source, is, is a mushroom something you gravitate to? 
Absolutely. I eat a lot of mushrooms. I consume the intake of a mushroom that a normal Australian would do in a year. I'd probably do in a month. It's my it's my protein source. And I really love how they're really bringing this plant-based solution through to people and giving people options. And the grower here said, you know, we're not looking at turning people vegan, but we're giving them options. So by having this growing capacity here in South Australia, it just provides more options for us. And there was a chat with Kenneth King, who is the CEO of the Epicurean Group, which is the, the group that is, is growing these mushrooms at the Holden factory. And uh, one, he, he talked about not just mushrooms, but also mushroom products. And one thing that they went into detail on was mushroom crumble, which, I mean, I think of apple crumble and think something sweet. So I was a bit like, ooh, mushrooms. But uh, actually the way they described it, the way that it can, can be used in um, uh, to bulk out various... Um, no bolognese's or lots of different things is quite an interesting product. Did they go through some of the other perhaps value add products that will be produced as well? Yeah, he was talking about that as well. And one of the things, as a vegetarian, I actually don't like those fake meats. I prefer a plant-based diet. And this is the gap that they're filling here. So the mushrooms that they're producing can be turned into almost like, it'll look like a shredded chicken. So you can add it to your tacos. You can put it in your bolognese. You can use it just like you would shredded um, chicken. So it's really quite exciting how they're thinking out of the box and giving us these other options. And, you know, you might not even be able to taste the difference. I have a question here. Do you know if they're being produced organically? I don't know if they're certified organically. You'd have to ask Kenny on that no, one. That's like, I thought that might have been a bit of a curveball for you. Well, <laughs> uh, it sounds like you're very excited to get stuck into these mushrooms. Thank you so much for joining me, Penny Reedy from the SA Produce Market. Thanks for having me. And uh, while we're talking about the SA produce market, Callum Han is chef and ambassador with Pick a Local Pick SA and uh, he works with the SA produce market. And he's been out there today just checking out some of the mushrooms. I'm sure chefs get very excited when they hear about exotic species uh, right on their their doorstep. There are other producers as well in South Australia, but uh, this new one, he's had a chance to get out and have a bit of a a look around. And uh, I've been asking for your thoughts on how to cook mushrooms, particularly the exotic ones, nuki or shiitake or oysters. Uh, so you can text 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. But if you're like me and a little in the dark on this, Callum Han can help us out. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So what are your tips for growing? They're starting with oyster mushrooms. So let's start with oyster mushrooms. What makes them special to cook with and what do you do with them? Oh, good question. I, I reckon oyster mushrooms are genuinely one of the most versatile mushrooms uh, that you're likely to find. Um, and I reckon they're the, they're the lazy person's mushroom because you don't even really need to chop them. They're so thin in that beautiful kind of fan shape um, that I often just tear them straight into the pan, whether that's, you know, pan frying a risotto or um, tearing onto the barbecue to, you know, serve with your steak or um, I like rolling around the pan with a little bit of butter and thyme or shallots or garlic and then popping it between bread, bit of cheese and make a mushroom toasty and it is the best thing ever. <laughs> and oyster mushrooms you have to cook. You can't eat oyster mushrooms raw is that right yeah okay. you um you do want to cook them um, whether it's steam or stir fry or quickly pan fry or, or, or what have you but if you do like that because i actually quite like that kind of texture um of raw mushrooms so um, if you bring up uh say three parts vinegar apple cider vinegar red wine vinegar or whatever one part sugar and one part water with whatever aromatic ingredients you like and pour that over the top that's um, enough to count them as cooked and you've basically made like a quick pickled kind of mushroom and from there you can just either chop them or tear them straight into um, salads and things and it's a really um, lovely way to kind of add a little bit of punch to a dish and 
For people who may not know what oyster mushrooms look like, uh, what, what do they actually look like? Yeah, I, I suppose they are named after the, you know, the seafood in terms of it's kind of got a, a small base and it sort of fans out to this big, flat, wide, um, feathered kind of shell shape, I suppose. Um, so they are beautiful for, um, for pan frying, um, for barbecuing, as I mentioned. Even because of their flat shape, I, I, did, I, mean, I know I mentioned a toasty before. I actually cooked some on a toasty toasty machine the other day. I was in a staff kitchen that had nothing else but a toasty machine because they're so flat. You can cook them from the top and the bottom at the same time, get plenty of golden brown colour on there, and they're absolutely perfect. I, I think the thing with exotic mushrooms is that they are no more difficult to cook than your field mushroom or your button mushroom that you've probably done your whole life. Um, you can use them with exactly the same recipes, um, but you just get love little nuances of texture and taste, so it's worth, uh, worth experimenting. And what about the shiitake and enoki mushrooms as well? Yeah, both um, well, shiitake have the most incredible umami, that really savoury sort of flavour, um, particularly when you get colour on them or if you put them into um, Asian-style broths and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I think enoki are really fun because the enoki are those ones um, often that pop up in um, TV shows and things. They, they look almost like a packet of spaghetti with tiny little mushrooms on the end. And they actually have a not dissimilar texture to, to cooked noodles. So they are beautiful, whether it is in a, in a stir fry or in a noodle soup or something like that. And you can either um, cook them how you, how you would any other mushroom. But even um, just popping them into uh, your serving bowl and pouring a soup on top of it. So they almost just gently poach in that broth. Um, for you know, if you're making a chicken noodle soup or, or what have you, um, they just get the most beautiful kind of slippery, um, lovely kind of texture. Um, so they're a really fun one to, to experiment with as well. Oh, that does, yeah. I'll give that. A go. I've never, I don't think I've ever even seen <laughs> enoki mushrooms to, uh, to uh, know. I what reckon to... when you see one, you'll, yeah, you, you'll kind of go, oh, those, those are the ones. Um, <laughs> but they're, and they're, because they're so thin as well, if you do, if you do cook them. Um, I said oyster was the, the lazy person's mushroom. I think enoki is the busy person's mushroom because they're like probably two mil thick. Um, they cook in literally 30 seconds in a hot pan. Oh, good to know. I've had a text in, um, or a caller actually, asking, are mushrooms harder to digest than other vegetables? Have you heard that? Uh, I've, I've got five dietitians in my team and not once has anyone said anything remotely similar to that. So it doesn't... Um, doesn't uh, strike any bells with me. But they're not particularly uh, I guess dense. Each to their own. If it's something, no, no. If, if it's something that, that doesn't agree with you, obviously, um, proceed with caution. Um, but yeah, as we said, like we, with some types of mushrooms, it is best to cook them. So as long as they're cooked and, and give it a go, and, and hopefully it works for you. Oh, and another text from David from Panorama saying you can grow mu- oyster mushrooms on coffee grounds. So uh, maybe there's a recycling opportunity there as well. That, do keep your texts coming, 0467 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. I know you've been cooking up a storm there at the uh, newly opened facility there at the former Holden factory. So I'll let you keep going. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Callum Han there, chef and ambassador for Pick a Local Pick SA, just uh, giving us some tips on what to do with these exotic mushrooms that are going to be uh, growing more prolifically, I guess, in the Adelaide Hills. Uh, a text has come in saying uh, oyster mushrooms are pretty expensive in the supermarkets, uh, $6 for about 150 grams. Maybe more on the market will see that price go down. Who knows? We will keep across. It might even pop out there. I think they said at the end of February there's going to be uh, some uh, more production coming out. Might be worth going out and checking it out. It is uh, 13 minutes to one.
Afternoons with Sonia Feldhoff. Simon Timkey, Senior Meteorologist with the Bureau of Meteorology. There is a build-up towards lightning happening that could see changes. Often when there's a lot of lightning around, most of the air is nitrogen and oxygen. The heat from the lightning can cause some of the bonds in molecules to break. As that air cools, some of those oxygen molecules reform as ozone, and that has quite a distinct smell. Sonia Feldhoff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Cassie Huff and you're listening to your ABC local radio. Now the 2023 SA finalists for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award have been announced. With the prestigious title comes a $15,000 Westpac grant which will help progress their winning project. And these projects are always amazing. I really don't know how the judges choose a winner. There are five female finalists who have been named and each week uh, on the Country Hour we're going to be uh, profiling a nominee, uh, a finalist, to hear how they would use the award to make a difference in their rural community. And first up we have Clare Valley's Ali Paulett who is speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris about her bush garden project seeing the, the other ladies that have been shortlisted. Uh, they're fabulous women, I know um, a couple of them. Um, and it's beautiful company to be amongst. I'm not sure how I'll go going further forwards because they are such amazing women with such amazing projects. So, yeah, very humbled to be um, amongst those ladies. Can you share a little bit about Paulette Wines and your involvement? Uh, so, yeah, Paulette Wines started back in 1983. So it's my husband's family's business, which I came um, back into the business in 98. I moved to Clare. So it's a family-owned and run, basically built from the ground up, um, and it's always been family-owned and run. I think always will be, hopefully. It's a beautiful family business, so we, we grow grapes, we make wine, and we sell wine all around the world. So we've had some really high accolades with our wines, um, getting best Riesling in the world a few years back and, and a few others. So um, as a winery side of stuff, it's been going really well. We planted the bush garden in 2010 and then opened a restaurant in 2015, which um, has recently just been awarded a hat, so we're pretty excited about that. So it's really come leaps and bounds over the last 40 years. So this is our 40th year this year. And before joining the family business, you actually worked in quite a variety of industries. What from those professions have you brought with you into the current position you're in now? That's a really interesting question. It's one I love sort of telling school kids and things when we've had school tours coming through. Um, Every job I've ever done has helped me become the person that I am today. So I originally started doing horse husbandry in business. So I was working over in Victoria at the Australian Equestrian Academy. So I was doing a lot of teaching young kids to ride as well as training horses. So I learned a lot of people skills in that in that area. And I learned that I really do love teaching and I have been teaching all through through my life. And then as a vet nurse, it's, it's people skills, it's management, it's um, office management. Um, and then I was a medical receptionist. Uh, went back and, and wine marketing. I did all of that as well. And then I ran my business doing drafting up to, drafting up to residential three stories um, and had that company for a while and that was really good on the graphics which then got me headhunted doing some stuff over in South Africa and for Melbourne Council and a lot of real estate agents doing um, computer generated imagery of houses that don't exist yet. So every job I've ever done has given me some little gold nugget that I've brought into where I am today which is what I sort of tell people you don't have to know exactly what you want to be at the end of the day because everything that you do will help you be the person you're going to be later on so um, yeah a bit of an advocate for that one. If successful you're hoping that the grant will support your sensory bush food garden. Talk a little bit more about that project. 
So at the moment, um, we did plant the garden back in 2010 as a sensory garden and it sort of evolved from there. I didn't realise how much interest there would be, but it was the first public bush food garden where people were allowed to go through and smell, taste, touch the, um, the produce that was in the garden and the plants. So we put interpretive signage through the garden to explain to people if it was edible, if it was medicinal, what it was. Um, and then sort of a bit of interest came from schools um, that wanted to have a tour through the garden and a bit of a chat and I was doing that with school groups and then some other sort of garden groups and clubs and stuff came through and sort of realised the interest of it and the hunger that people had to learn more about it because there wasn't a lot available back in um, 2010 obviously and it's sort of grown from there and so we're sort of more school tours are coming through which we now incorporate our chef as well with food and cooking and some of the year 12 um, classes that come through using using it for their major projects to create dishes. So going forwards um, we're hoping to improve what's already there and make it more accessible so to get some videography and some QR code through the garden so that it can be more self-guided so schools and tour groups can come through and do self-guided tours through the garden and then also touch base with our um, and connect in with our First Nations and Nigeri people and get them to tell a bit more about the land and the history and the story behind the land as well as the food and the, the produce that we're creating. There's lots of uh, great goals there. What are your overall hopes for the garden? I'm hoping the garden can be a real showpiece, something that schools use as a resource. So by doing this and digitising a lot of it, not only will schools be able to come here and immerse themselves in it, but we'll be able to take the experience into schools. So we'll be able to take it into the classrooms with some samples of the plants and dried goods that they can taste, touch, cook within their home ec and they can see a video of where it's come from and, and learn the story behind the produce before they use it. So we've got that sort of education piece and then on a commercial piece we'll be able to send it off with packs of our wines to do, you know, digital dinner parties sort of things so they can, you know, have all the ingredients and the recipe cards and the wine and they can have a dinner party and, and bring it up and say this is where it's from and this is how the head chef prepares the food and this is what we're doing. So it becomes sort of an educational piece and a commercial piece that people that are interested can immerse themselves in the garden even if they can't come to the Clare Valley. They'll be able to immerse themselves in there but also to create a space that First Nations and people alike feel that they're welcome to come and sit in a beautiful tranquil garden that's got lots of information there and create more of a picnic space and even a fire pit to actually improve the garden, um, grow it a little bit, um, help regenerate some of the plants that we lost because they're very finicky native plants, some of them. So, yeah, so make the garden a real showpiece and a place that people want to be but also make it available for people that can't physically be here. They'll be able to connect in. Does sound like a lovely peaceful place. That was Managing Director of Clare Valley's Paulette's Wines and Rural Women's Award finalist for South Australia, Ali Paulette. Uh, the state winner will be announced in May this year and I'll have more details on the other finalists in the coming weeks. Finally today, since China banned Southern Rock Lobster, or the... Um, importation. It forced sellers to find new and uh, generally a a local market. Uh, In many coastal towns in South Australia, for the first time in years, you could actually buy locally caught crays and they popped up in more restaurants around the state as well. But with a new trade deal potentially on the cards, what is going to happen to the local supply chains if China or other countries do start buying lobsters again? Retailer uh, and lobster retailer Andrew Ferguson says if the product was allowed to go back to China, it doesn't necessarily mean prices would become unaffordable again for locals. It depends on a lot of things really in answer to that question because you know, we don't know what the trade deal is going to look like, it's strings attached. It's very hard to say exactly how it's going to affect the local market But because um, yeah, I'm hearing things in China that they've had uptake of what the Canadian lobsters that they're using now, they've more crabs, so they've sort of... I think it'll take a while to get back in the swing of things when, when it, obviously they do know our product, but how, how heavily we've got to compete with the other product going into China now, that, that'll, that'll play a, uh, a role in that, I'd imagine.
And while it has been difficult for retailers and fishermen with those prices going down, the benefit for the community is that it was more affordable for them to start to eat it. Do you think that might change? We might see a difference with the local market starting to buy it less or it being available less in restaurants? Maybe, but even when China is buying our lobsters, we've got periods where there's not much celebration going on in China and so the price does come back anyway. So, you know, we do a lot of value-added frozen products, so we, we tend to buy that at the best price we can and so that we can offer the best best price. So, I mean, there's probably ways of working through that to, so that we can actually keep supplying the local market. I, I, for one, you know, want to keep the local market going as much as I can because it's certainly been a, shown over these last couple of years, you know, how you know, the opportunity in Australia on the local market for our products. So, yeah, no, we'll, be, we'll be working to that. I think that the problem we had before was China was just consuming it at any cost and because they thought there was a free, free trade going on there. And now that's changed. Yeah, it, it might be hard just to sort of swing straight back to that is what I'm thinking. Right. So you think the local demand could be sustained going into the future? This might change might be somewhat permanent? I think so. I think I would like, for one, to be looking after the local market as much as I can. I want to keep our diversity there as, as, as we've sort of been able to create over the last few years and it's taken a while to do that but yeah I think the diversity is valuable and we've got to you know I think for one we've got to look at that and try and sustain that as much as we can. Yes the price in the local market yeah maybe won't, won't go to the, the silly levels that we had before. And why did it take a couple of years to kind of start to build up that local market? Well, I think we able to sell into supermarkets where it wasn't sort of readily available in that sort of environment before, and supermarkets were wary to start off with to to take that on. But once they saw the the pathway, yeah, and that that sort of that created more the opportunity for us than anything, and we're being able to re- reliably supply that product all the time rather than just in dribs and drabs. So where, where it was was a consistent supply it was was important. And you'd heard good feedback from locals. Yeah, no, we've we've got a half barbecue lobster that we're selling to Costco and uh, other other places. It's going quite well. So that was never that was never there before. But I think the price we've got there is sustainable um, and it's a reasonable price. So it's, yeah, I, I've had I've had good feedback, and it's just another way that lobster was never eaten in a, on a barbecue sort of sense before with garlic butter and that, those sort of additives. Where it's just a cold. We, we think of lobster as buying at Christmas time and eating it cold. Just just other ways of of. Yeah, I know in, a, in Europe and China and all these places, they, they sort of have uh, different methods of cooking, sashimi, lobster, all these things that we sort of don't tend to touch on. That was Andrew Ferguson from Ferguson Fisheries speaking with Elsie Adamo there. And uh, just a final text from Gail from Murray Bridge. She says she went to a hotel in Port Lincoln for schnitzel night and their vegetarian option was a mushroom schnitzel made with one of the really big ones and it was delicious. Thanks for your text there, Gail. It's been great to have a chat with many of you this afternoon and now I get to have a chat with Sonia Feldhoff. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. We're going to talk about homeless homelessness today. Now, this is an ongoing pre- um problem and obviously bigger minds than mine or yours have been working on this for a very, very long time uh, without really uh, a lot of uh, resolution. But could the change in attitudes, if not the solution to homelessness, could a change in attitude be simply putting a face to those who are homeless? We're going to look and talk with people who've tried a different approach and how that might make a difference for you and me in the way that some of these people transition from the streets to under a roof. Um, 
I think it's a really interesting question. We'll take and has, has it been done elsewhere? Or? Well, it's not even been done formally. So we'll explore that a little bit today after two o'clock. Also, he is one of the great voices of Australia. He's on his way to Adelaide. Uh, John Stevens will be my guest from Noiseworks today too. Yeah. He's Wonderful. aging well. In the studio? No, I don't ah. think he's in the studio, sadly. <laughs> that could have been What a jump at that chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep listening to your local radio, regardless of whether John Stevens is in the studio or not, as we approach one o'clock on ABC Local Radio. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.